Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Tuesdays at APA podcast, Source Water Protection in the 21st Century, originally recorded on July 14th, 2015. As news arises of drought, harmful algal blooms, and chemical spills across the nation, we are regularly reminded of the need to protect drinking water in our cities and communities. Every day, land use decisions affect future drinking water supplies, either intentionally or inadvertently. By protecting sources of drinking water through regular planning activities and practices like green infrastructure, we can build resilient, healthy, and beautiful communities. The Source Water Collaborative formed in 2006 with the goal to combine the strengths and tools of a diverse set of member organizations to act now and protect sources of drinking water for generations to come. As a member of the collaborative, APA works with partners like the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. Forest Service, Smart Growth America, and many others to help communities across the nation protect sources of drinking water. In this program, we'll hear from Rachel Carlson and Jim Taft. Rachel Carlson is an environmental protection specialist in the Drinking Water Protection Division Office of Groundwater and Drinking Water at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She assists with geospatial analysis and outreach in a variety of projects to protect sources of drinking water and participates in the Source Water Collaborative, a group of 26 national organizations, including APA, that are dedicated to protecting source water. Jim Taft is Executive Director of the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators, which supports the efforts of drinking water program administrators in states, territories, the District of Columbia, and the Navajo Nation as they implement the provisions of the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, Thanks very much for having us, first of all, on a warm day. Um, We wanted to share with you um, a little bit of background about protecting sources of drinking water, why we do it, why it's important to do, um, some of the collaborative activities that we've done together with um, including the American Planning Association, some of the opportunities and some of the challenges that are out there. So I wanted to um, begin by kind of making the case why it is important to protect sources of drinking water. Um, Just a little bit of demographics for you. Um, There are 166,000 or so public water systems in the U.S. Those are systems serving more than 25 people per day. Um, There are a lot of people that get their water from private wells, but by and large, most folks get their water from public water systems. Uh, By volume, most people get their water from large cities uh, who typically use surface sources of drinking water. Um, But there are lots and lots of small rural communities that typically use groundwater sources of drinking water. So um, the threats that we see are coming from both point sources, um, publicly owned treatment works, industrial discharges, et cetera, as well as non-point source runoff, um, stormwater, um, runoff from croplands, um, various kinds of non-point source threats, which are much more challenging sometimes to kind of get a handle on because our our tools are sort of diffuse and not as defined um, as they are in the case of point sources. The the agency EPA estimates that about 23% of our source waters are impaired. Um, That is uh, something that is required to be estimated every few years under Section 303D of the Clean Water Act. Um, And so while much has been done, um, the 
celebrations of the 40th anniversary of the Safe Drinking Water Act was in December. The Clean Water Act was a couple of years before that. Much has been accomplished. Still much is yet to be done. Um, we really got, I would say, kind of a wake-up call in January of 2014 on the point source discharge side in terms of a uh, very large spill of a coal washing chemical in Charleston, West Virginia that essentially shut down the water supply to 300,000 people and businesses for over a week. Uh, fortunately, in that case, the, the actual contaminant, this uh, coal washing chemical, which goes by the acronym CHCM, um, was not particularly dangerous from a health standpoint, but aesthetically it was uh, very unpleasing. It had a, um, a licorice smell that even when you sort of reduced it down to very low levels, there was still the, the sense that you were drinking water that was contaminated. So um, millions and millions of dollars in terms of lost uh, profit from businesses, um, the, the, the angst and the expense and all of the work that it took to get folks safe drinking water. So that was one very recent um, wake-up call. Another took place about this time last year in uh, Toledo, Ohio. Uh, you may have heard of that. There was uh, an algal bloom in Lake Erie, western Lake Erie, which often gets them, but proliferated to the point where um, toxin, toxins that were released from the uh, algal bloom uh, rose to a point where they became uh, public health threatening. And so the, the water supply was shut down for a little over 24 hours. So you had a city of 400,000 people without water, um, at the tap, and so the National Guard kicked in and, and uh, bottled water and all of those kinds of things had to sort of um, bridge the gap there. So a couple of very recent wake-up calls that indeed our, our waters are threatened. Um, another source of non-point contamination, or excuse me, the, in addition to proliferation of algal blooms um, in Lake Erie, we've seen in a number of cities of Iowa, um, high levels of nitrates um, uh, approaching the level that's unsafe in drinking water of 10 parts per million. Um, in more than 60 cities in Iowa, as the slide indicates, and then another 260 cities whose water is susceptible. It's not quite to that 10 part per million level yet, but over five. And so um, about 30% of Iowa cities are in that state. Um, you may have heard that the city of Des Moines actually sued three of the irrigation districts that uh, drain into the water supply for the city of Des Moines. So lots of threats. Those are just some examples. Um, and so the question is sometimes posed, why can't water treatment plants simply treat? Um, we have good engineering. We have very capable treatment facilities in most cases. Uh, why can't we simply treat our way out of this? Well. Um, Part of the reason is the conventional treatment, treatment plants don't remove everything that uh, comes into their treatment systems. And so um, it's really important to protect sources of drinking water. Um, the algal toxins and CHCM are, are two good examples of materials that pass through that did not, um, weren't adequately treated, weren't amenable to conventional treatment. So what we have sort of discovered over the years is that this is really very much a team effort that to, to adequately protect sources of drinking water, we need to collaborate. Um, 
And when I say we, um, we mean federal, state, local entities need to collaborate. No entity has all of the, the tools, the authorities, the resources needed to do the job. And so the most effective e efforts typically are collaborative efforts. Um, we've recognized that at the national level by forging a collaborative comprised of the organizations that you see on the slide, which include the American Planning Association, our association, EPA, USDA, um, the large utility groups, a number of um, local groups. And so um, it's all about leveraging one another's resources and authorities and information to, to be more effective in protecting sources of drinking water. Um, it's not usually a good thing to be used, but in this case, it's good to be used um, by one another in pursuit of uh, protecting our sources of drinking water. Um, one of the things that's happened over the last year or so is kind of a desire to uh, stake out this ground yet again, to um, again sort of state the case for protecting sources of drinking water, sort of driven a little bit by the, the incidents that I mentioned, but also um, it's been um, over 10 years, excuse me, it's been almost 10 years since the, um, the 1996 amendments to the Safe Drinking Water Act, which laid out a requirement for assessing sources of drinking water. So we collectively, the Source Water Collaborative, felt that it was very appropriate to um, again kind of lay out the case in a call to action, sort of stating what is our end result here? Um, you see the vision on the right-hand side of the slide that all drinking water sources are adequately protected. And as a result, the nation gains profound public health advantages as well as economic benefits. Um, and so to do that, we think there are three basic steps that need to take place. We need to um, make sure that we understand through good data and information where the threats are to update our source water assessments. Um, during the sort of the 2000, 2004, 2003, 2004 timeframe, all states assessed their drinking waters in terms of the threats, um, in terms of the actions that needed to be taken. Um, but that information has gotten dated, needs to be updated, so that we have good actionable information of where the threats really are. Um, and then based upon that, step two, we need to take priority actions to, um, to protect sources of drinking water. And then thirdly, we need to coordinate, collaborate, and communicate in, in taking those steps. We need to um, ideally be proactive in preventing things from happening, but also be able to mitigate and be reactive where we need to be so that uh, where there is an impairment, we can respond to it as quickly as possible. Um, so for instance, along the Ohio River and its tributaries, um, there are very good mechanisms for communicating downstream to downstream users, such as drinking water intakes, when there is a threat. So um, that's the three-step call to action. But in addition to that, we laid out, and I think you guys probably got as you came in, the call to action. There are things that everyone can do. There are things that states can do things that uh, federal agencies can do, things that citizens and local governments can do. And so we're going to share some of those with you um, in just a moment um, from a planning perspective. But we think that there are, there are particular actions and steps that each of us can take um, and are taking. I don't mean to suggest that 
we're starting from scratch here. Far from it. I mean, a lot of great work has been done, but as mentioned, much more needs to be done. Um, but there's a lot of public support out there for what we're doing. Um, I think there's a good recognition for um, the importance of public health protection, protecting our sources. Um, every survey that's done, typically protecting sources of drinking water, rises to be either the first or second priority that folks have when they think about conservation efforts and um, their impacts. This is showing you on the right-hand bottom of the slide one such study. Um, but it's also a, a, a beneficial proposition. Um, it's much more uh, inexpensive, much more beneficial to protect sources of drinking water than to build more and more treatment and to react to the, to the negative impacts when source waters are impaired. Um, the second bullet indicates that source water protection is popular. It's, it's actually something that um, typically um, is a winning proposition in, in local um, measures where land conservation is on the ballot. Um, the second bullet, sub-bullet here indicates that in 2012, voters passed 81% of local measures um, and that an estimated $767 million was raised. So uh, just a, a real good indication that there is public support out there for these kinds of steps. And source water protection connects communities. Um, here's one example from um, Stratford County, New Hampshire Regional Planning Commission which is part of something called the Salmon River, Salmon Falls Public um, Source Water Collaborative. Um, but through these efforts of collaborating, other sources, other resources can be leveraged. Um, as indicated here, the um, USDA NRCS, the National Resources Conservation Service, has made uh, $1 million available for some of the local measures that have um, been instituted have taken place in that particular collaborative activity. So a good thing to do, but a popular thing to do as well. So I think with that bit of introduction, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, Rachel, to kind of walk through some of the specifics. Great. Thanks so much, Jim. That's a perfect introduction. Um, so as you know, Jim, Jim highlighted really the central reasons why we should pay attention to source water protection, why we should sort of seek to promote it in our communities, um, and why there's a lot, you know, kind of statistics uh, that you can cite for um, the, the popularity of, of source water protection because it has such direct public health benefits. So one, one um, you know, sort of initiative that the Source Water Collaborative, the group that Jim mentioned, um, has staged to really kind of enhance awareness of different steps that we can take to promote source water protection and implement it directly in our communities um, is a guide called the Planner's Guide, which uh, I think you all should have received at the front desk. If not, there there is a copy up there for you. Um, let me change this slide. And so the Planner's Guide really takes the, the three steps that Jim mentioned under the call to action um, and tries to make it relevant to, to you guys, to planners, um, with, with 
kind of discrete, discrete categories of, of actions and distinct actions under those categories that, that you can take to really start to implement source water protection or at least get the conversation started. So I'll go through a few of those, um, and I will say that APA really took the pen on updating that planner's guide this year, and so um, I'm sure that there will be, there'll be um, times when I'll defer to Anna or, or even defer to you guys for your input on, on your experiences and, and how you've seen this operate in different contexts, but um, but I would like to touch on a few major themes and points. Um, and so the first sort of category of actions that Planner's Guide talks about is long-range visioning. So when you're, you're looking at sort of establishing or, or discussing into being a vision for your community, um, I think it's, it's important to take into account source water protection, you know, from, from inception, from an embryonic stage. Um, and this is, is kind of easier than, than, you know, you might think because source water protection does tend to have so many co-benefits. It has recreation opportunity benefits. It has, um, you know, the, the, the green infrastructure and beautification practices that go hand in hand with protecting, um, you know, your, your, your land and your aquifers um, really amount to kind of increases in property values and, um, and a number of, you know, for instance, climate resilience, a number of co-benefits that allow source water protection to be sort of seamlessly integrated into other aspects of your vision. Um, and so an important, I think, uh, one important action that you can take to really uh, figure out how to integrate source water protection from, from you know, the start is to, is to reach out to local source water experts, surface water and groundwater experts, um, which includes, you know, people at the state level, ASDWA, Jim's organization has a running list of the source water protection um, kind of point people at the state level, and also your local water districts, your, your local utilities to, you know, basically figure out where your source water protection area is, where it's delineated in your community, what land most directly impacts it, and what potential sources of contamination you might be seeing. Um, and, and those, you know, utilities, those other stakeholders from diverse perspectives and disciplines um, can, can give you a number of resources. They can provide technical assistance. They can help you with GIS. They can provide data. And in many, many cases, they can provide funding for these types of beautification and climate resilience projects that you might otherwise be looking at as well. Um, and Jim will speak to some of the, the funding resources that, that those partners make available. Um, Jim... One of the slides earlier touched on a statistic that um, one study showed that a $1 investment by a water utility in source water protection, for instance, land conservation upstream, amounted to or translated to a $27 um, kind of savings in treatment costs that that utility would otherwise have to sustain to, to you know, um, to separate out a contaminant from their uh, finished drinking water. And so there's a lot of sort of financial motivation for these other partners to, um, to fund source water protection, and that could be also a funding resource for, for planning projects. Um, this second bullet here, one, another action that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with visioning is using scenario-based analysis um, to assess different, uh, different development and land use scenarios and evaluate quantitatively um, how how source water protection might make sense to your community and the costs and benefits. So one example um, that 
uh, should be on one of the handouts on JS resources comes from Albany County, Wyoming, uh, where Albany County used a JS uh, scenario analysis tool called CommunityViz to evaluate three different development scenarios. Albany was seeing um, an incredibly high increase in, in uh, development in their county. Um, they were worried about this because this development sat on top of a major vulnerable, um, unconfined aquifer. And so they used CommunityViz to evaluate three development scenarios. One uh, was sort of a business-as-usual scenario. One was a scenario that, that used strategic development strategies, uh, strategic development patterns um, to to better protect that aquifer, um, and a third that was sort of a middle ground between business-as-usual um, but also seeing a sort of... Uh, uh, in, in involving a some some density shift or some um, you know different patterns of, of density based on trends that they had observed, um, they found that the aquifer protection scenario was actually quite cheap. It, it had uh, it, it created those co-benefits that they were also looking for, and you know wasn't nearly as onerous as some people might have expected, so they were able to use this scenario analysis tool to really um, message the value of source water protection and the ease of it to, you know, to the top to managers and, uh, and authorities in that community um, and created a lot of aquifer protection as a result of that. And this, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, um, and, and I'll just touch on this briefly because I'll mention a few more specific actions um, in terms of these, uh, these green infrastructure and climate resilience goals in a second. Um, but the processes that communities um, use to vision for things like climate resilience and green infrastructure and beautification can be used to integrate source water protection. Um, so many communities have climate action plans or they have stormwater management plans um, and so those easily link to source water protection if you sort of do the original scoping for, you know, where is my source water protection area, where does it link naturally to these other activities and, and uh, priorities taking place. And I, I um, have a, a longer document that I printed out uh, for you guys to browse through at the end of the session, um, or I can also show you guys the link for a, um, a kind of a white paper from the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning, their technical assistance program, which really brings you through some steps in the visioning process that you can take to, um, to look at broader sustainability goals, but also integrating source water protection. So this is just one example of a community that really affected a lot of change by integrating source water protection in their visioning process from the start. Uh, Capitol Heights, Maryland worked with a, um, a, a local NGO for the, the district in Maryland and Virginia area um, to, to essentially develop a master plan for Green Street development. Um, and so they identified, you know, one kind of core partner in the area that has generated an, an enormous amount of, of resources on integrating low-impact development, 
um, and, and green infrastructure in communities. Uh, for instance, to the, to the right here, you see the Army Low Impact Development Technical User Guide. Um, so they used resources like that to develop um, this master plan for green street development. And um, this led to streamside wetland buffers uh, that created park spaces beside um, their, their waterways to protect those source waters, but also create recreational opportunities and trails um, beside a stream system in their community. And this project was funded through the Chesapeake Bay Trust, um, as well as EPA Region 3, and has seen um, some, some good success. So this next step, which I touched on earlier, uh, is, is the, the plan-making kind of category of actions that you'll see under the Planner's Guide. Um, and you know, one specific action you can take is to develop a stormwater management plan uh, that, that looks at your sources of pollution, non-point and point sources. Um, so those, those sort of stormwater conduits, but also you know, maybe industrial dischargers, uh, farms, or, or um, other you know, potential sources of contamination and uh, develop concrete actions and strategies to address them. Um, so one example is in Durham, North Carolina, they, they looked at their stormwater issues and they created um, a system of, of wastewater and surface water, um, I'm sorry, wastewater and, and sewage water um, funding channels, uh, channels to, to fund practices to address uh, wastewater and, and, and sewage overflows. Um, they also, in Durham, developed a toolkit for using new technology to track pollutant loading contributions in their source water and also established a kind of metric or, or a set of criteria for evaluating stormwater projects so that if people had ideas for projects in their community, they could really easily evaluate them and, and authorize them. And so that's one example of um, a, 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 an effective set of tools that emerge from a stormwater management plan in a community. Um, EPA has invested, for instance, a lot in stormwater management planning in communities. Um, there's an initiative over the last few years to devote a considerable amount of funding to technical assistance for, for uh, five communities in its initial rollout and then uh, looking at other communities um, beyond, beyond those into the future, but there, there are a number of, of funding and technical support resources out there for developing stormwater management plans. Another aspect of plan making is to take stock of your sensitive areas, your wellhead protection areas, your vulnerable aquifers, uh, like in Albany, Albany County, um, and areas that are particularly vulnerable to development and use, use mapping and, and, as I mentioned before, scenario analysis to, um, to figure out strategies of, of managing those wisely. So, um, and you know, that those, those strategies could include things like stream buffers, um, ordinances or voluntary activities to address potential sources of contamination, like combined sewer overflows, making sure that those sewer, sewer overflows are not in your surface water protection area, um, or addressing existing underground storage tanks, leaking underground storage tanks, um, above ground storage tanks like the, the tank in West Virginia, uh, making sure that, that where those exist in your community, they're um, to the best extent possible staying out of your, your source water. So a few resources that you can use to do this, um, you can find on the Source Water Collaborative website. And this, this resource to the left is called DW Maps, the Drinking Water Mapping Application to Protect Source Waters. This is a tool that EPA is in the process of creating 
uh, for mapping source water protection areas um, and you know potentially more importantly the potential sources of contamination uh, to those those um, surface water intakes or wells in communities around the country. So this tool draws upon national databases, um, the facility registry of, of possible contamination sources and, and um, you know, industrial dischargers, factories, uh, combined sewer overflows, underground storage tanks, things like that around the country and maps them um, alongside drinking water intakes and wells um, as well as delineates the area um, that is most vulnerable to, to those, um, those that, that contamination. So you can um, use this tool to sort of take stock of where there are potential sources of contamination directly overlaid on top of or, or um, co-located with your, your intakes um, and vulnerable areas. And there will be uh, different versions of this tool to be released. The uh, the, informa- the the point lat longs, the point locations of intakes and wells in the U.S. Um, are considered uh, they're they're not they're not confidential, but they are sensitive um, after 9/11, and so we won't be releasing those point locations to the public from EPA. Oftentimes, they are available um, on a state from state databases. It really just depends state by state. Um, North Carolina, for instance, and Idaho publish their data freely. Not all states do. Um, but there will be a public version of this tool that if, you know, that, that will that will give information on on all the potential sources of contamination in your area. So if you connect with your utility or your water district, if you connect with your state um, source water person or um, or drinking water office and and get data on, you know, where in your community there's an intake or a well, you can easily use the public version of DW maps uh, to to see, you know, where there are potential risks. To the right, you'll see other sources, um, other other resources for mapping vulnerabilities in your community. And those that that's a screenshot from the uh, soon to be launched new Source Water Collaborative website. Uh, under that website, you can go to the icon Assess and Protect uh, My Sources of Drinking Water, and then it's an easy click to map my sources of drinking water, and you'll get a list <laughs> of different uh, mapping resources those that, that, that come from sort of all different actors, all, all different information gatherers. Um, so USGS, some NGOs, some think tanks, EPA, um, EPA not only headquarters but regions. There's a regional uh, oil infrastructure database, for instance. Um, so that's a, a, a good resource for you. Another set of actions that you can take falls under uh, the category in the planner's guide that you'll see called uh, regulations and incentives. So these are uh, you know, regulatory pr- approaches like local ordinances or um, non-regulatory incentives that uh, that you can initiate to um, to sort of institutionalize and hardwire source water protection into your um, the, the practices of your community and its planning. And so, um, you know, one one good way of doing this is by uh, establishing. Uh, stream buffer ordinances, which are basically um, requirements for a setback zone um, between a, a riverine area and um, potential sources of contamination, whether that be a farm or, or development um, or something else, and um, 
and requiring a certain buffer between your your surface water, for instance, and um, and a local potential source of contamination. Uh, there are also things like underground storage tanks, safety regulations, and other other um, aspects of, of addressing contaminants that you can look at on a local basis. Um, but there's also a lot of uh, th- th- there's a lot of work to be done on the sort of incentivizing and non-regulatory um, initiatives, and uh, that can include things like compact settlement patterns, where, um, in, for instance, in in Vermont, Vermont offers technical assistance to build new developments on sites that are, are already um, that have existing development or existing impermeable spaces, um, and so that really sort of concentrates new development um, in already dense areas to mitigate um, sprawl and mitigate, you know, in, uh, stormwater impacts um, and and increasing stormwater runoff um, into the future. So um, there are a number of different strategies for compact settlement patterns. Um, One includes uh, transfer development rights, which um, has has seen a lot of use in New England, for instance. Um, So transfer development rights is essentially where a preservation area or a a, um, vulnerable area can sell the, instead of allowing development on that preservation area, um, can sell the development rights for that that particular zone um, to authorize development in a in an already developed area. So it essentially shifts that that uh, what what would normally be sprawl to an existing hub or existing um, you know high density space. In, in your community, and so those 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 um, high potential kind of restoration or preservation areas can be sustained, and source water impacts can be mitigated that way. Um, so a number of non-regulatory tools exist that can be used for smart growth um, mechanisms, like I touched on in, in Durham for streamlining authorization of, of green infrastructure projects and authorizing permits um, to lower the cost of those those activities. And tax in- incentives for green infrastructure, low impact development, um, and technical assistance programs. So technical assistance is really context dependent, but it can come from a number of different stakeholders and sources. It can come from your state. It can come from EPA. Um, it can come from um, NGOs, the Trust for Public Land, uh, places like the Center for Watershed Protection, which works a lot in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, Smart Growth America, a number of, of of different um, organizations exist at the national and local level to to help you out there, and there there are also uh, private partners who are interested in things like community beautification. Um, they usually get a kind of PR plug sometimes from from green infrastructure projects, things like rain gardens um, or or permeable pavement or or um, green infrastructure retrofits in a community. And so there are some opportunities there as well. So this is one example of a community that really took a, a really um, proactive approach to source water protection in establishing a stream setback ordinance and not only saw a, a very, very um, high impact on its local water quality, but also conjured um, 
great public approval from that process and and had a, a, a basically the whole community mobilized behind it. And so this comes from Kansas City. Kansas City adopted a stream setback ordinance in, I believe, 2006. Um, and so this was a bit of a long process, but but one that, you know, through gradual, you know, several iterations really amounted to a long-running project. Um, the Kansas City Planning and Development Partner, uh, Planning and Development Department worked with its Water Services Department to run a watershed assessment and determine uh, the high-priority restoration sites in, in Kansas City. Um, they developed a stormwater master plan and then um, ran a, a GIS-based assessment of water quality in its key vulnerable areas. Um, the, their, their next stage was to essentially get together a large group of stakeholders into a group that they called the Wet Weather Program um, that combined the sort of uh, the, the authorities behind um, managing sewer and uh, sewer overflows, flooding, water quality, um, and, and land use in, in that community. And so this wet weather program um, continued to run new GIS analyses, water quality analyses, um, and and lit upon a stream setback ordinance as a very very effective approach to protecting not only um, water quality but also protecting that community against um, against uh, flooding and and potential climate impacts in into the you know ten and fifteen and twenty years to come. And so they, um, they essentially you know, brought together a number of experts to look at different model ordinances from other communities in Kansas and Missouri. Um, they started by adopting uh, one, of, one of those communities' models for stream setbacks, um, then adapted that particular model to um, some new requirements and some new logic that Kansas City itself repre- uh, you know, presented. Um, they came up with a system of grading different streams and prioritizing them based on their proximity to the headwaters, and then they established different buffer zones um, next to those different, um, next to the different the different parts of um, their source water based on that that kind of logic as diagram to the right. Um, and so this was a several-year process. It required several iterations and analyses, um, but they, they did an enormous effort and a great job of bringing together a number of different partners um, to, to protect their water quality. And um, the final ordinance had a 87% public support um, vote. So it was, it was, enormously, it was enormously popular and, um, and very high-profile in that community. So um, another aspect, another you know, my last kind of I think few set of uh, few, few co- my last set of a few concrete actions um, is in development review and public investment. And so when you have an application for a new development, um, it's a good idea to require that developer to submit information on drinking water sources that might be impacted by that development. Um, it's also a, a best practice to include those source water experts, um, like the utilities and um, and state programs or local programs that I mentioned in in technical review committees for those those developments. Um, and so, you know, get to know your utility, get to know what funding resources they might have avail- available. Um, Jim will speak to that in a second. 
and um, you know, in, in getting to know those different partners and incorporating them in your technical review committees, um, I would keep an eye out for source water collaboratives in your area. On that source water website, we have a map of source water collaboratives around the country um, that are those partnerships for bringing together different stakeholders like in Kansas City. Um, there is, for instance, a collaborative in New England called Newman, the uh, New England Watershed Managers uh, Network, I think. <laughs> and so that's a network of all the um, major utilities in the New England area that get together, they share data, they talk about their most important priority areas, and they can be a really great resource for information to consider when, um, when vetting new developments. Um, and, you know, this last bullet to advocate for, pub for bond issues to support land conservation and green infrastructure, as Jim mentioned earlier and as illustrated by the Kansas City example, there is generally a huge, we've, we've observed a huge amount of support for public measures, even at cost um, to local citizens, to, um, to institute green infrastructure or land conservation practices if it is linked to source water protection. Everybody is, is sensitive to the public health message. Um, there's an 81% approval rate for bond and tax measures uh, when it's linked to source water protection. And around the country, that's amounted to uh, $767 million at least for land conservation um, to protect source waters. Uh, one example is in the Edwards Aquifer area, in Texas, local residents authorized a one-eighth of a cent uh, increase in property and sales taxes to fund lands conservation impacting the Edwards Aquifer, and that has had an enormous impact on generating a lot of revenue for protecting that aquifer and also beautifying the area, improving climate resilience, and, and um, you know, in generating public support. So lots of good opportunities there. And these are just a few resources you can use to start to look at, um, at uh, you know, looking to different partners for development review, you know, technical advisory committees, and, um, and also for starting to think about or starting a conversation about um, tax, you know, sa those sales or property tax measures or bond measures to fence source water protection. So, um, the Trust for Public Land is a great resource. We also, the Source Water Collaborative has issued a pamphlet um, that brings you through some, some um, key talking points for approaching your local authorities and local decision makers um, to promote source water protection. That's called Your Water, Your Decision, and it's available on the Source Water website. And I'll turn it over to Jim to... Oh, actually, I think I have one more slide. Sorry about that. I just wanted to mention really quickly that you're not alone in this process. I think I've touched on partnerships a number of times. Um, the Source Water Collaborative, you know, is, is based on the premise that we can't really go it alone um, when it comes to source water protection and, you know, planning in general. Uh, we have to talk to our utilities. We have to talk to utilities. Have to talk to planners um, and connect with community groups that um, that can organize groups of volunteers, can organize public supports around different measures, um, and so you know this can this can activate different sources of funding, can activate um, technical expertise from different disciplines and different authorities that that have the you know, the power to enact uh, specific measures and specific, um, and, and really implement these projects. So there are a few examples listed here on, on strong partnerships that have 
um, that have implemented green infrastructure and low-impact development practices, um, one from Camden um, in New Jersey that used partners that ranged from utilities to local NGOs to the state DAP um, and to, to the university level, so non-traditional partners as well. You can look at universities um, and their expertise and they, they did a lot of great work in Camden and a vacant lot and that, that is, I think, now expanding. Um, and also in Niles, Illinois, I touched on public-private partnerships. This is an example of Coca-Cola getting involved in starting a permeable garden on a vacant lot in, in Niles. Um, and even, a, you, even transforming a small vacant lot can have a huge impact. They, they uh, established a permeable garden on a 1.5-acre lot, and that uh, translated to a um, runoff, uh, four, 5.46 million liters of annual uh, stormwater runoff captured by that that small area. So, um, so some good opportunities to be leveraged there. And that I think lends uh, pretty well to Jim's next uh, points about funding resources. So I'll just turn it over to you. Thanks, Rachel. Just a couple of remaining slides, and then would love to kind of hear your thoughts on some of what we've been talking about. Um, we often come to money as one of the, the impediments, and um, it certainly is an impediment. Uh, there, there are limited resources, it's, uh, but there are creative ways, I think, that uh, money can be brought to the table. Um, and you see some of them listed on this slide. The state revolving loan funds, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but every year Congress, well, for the last 15 years or so, Congress has appropriated about a billion dollars for uh, clean water infrastructure and about a billion dollars or a bit less for drinking water infrastructure. Um, on the clean water side, there are a lot of opportunities for green projects that leverage those funds, um, particularly in the area of stormwater and some really creative, innovative ways of, of um, not thinking solely about gray infrastructure, but really some green infrastructure ways to to address uh, stormwater in a way that is more protective and friendly to sources of drinking water. Um, likewise, the drinking water, say revolving loan fund, uh, while it principally funds drinking water infrastructure, 31% uh, can be reserved for states for a variety of purposes. And one of them is to help assist their communities in protecting sources of drinking water. So. There are some opportunities through those two federal sources. Um, another federal source is the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The Natural Resources Conservation Service principally um, is, the, is the, um, the agency within USDA that administers four or five different programs um, that involve conservation programs. They're voluntary programs, but make a lot of money available. Um, and one of the things that we've learned over the years is that um, it's oftentimes kind of a matter of approaching them at the right time with the right information. They're quite ready, willing, and able to fund conservation projects that um, have a real benefit for um, ground and surface waters, but it's a matter of kind of bringing that information to the table at the right time in the right place. One of the resources that we've developed uh, with USDA as well as the National Association of Conservation Districts is an online tool that helps us understand when and how to approach them uh, strategically, what information do they need, how does their process work. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, 
to have the best chances for success. And so um, funding through the farm bill administered through USDA is yet another one. Rachel touched on a lot of the local grant and funding measures, um, a lot of the tax and bond measures. There are, there are a lot of very interesting and um, innovative ways, I think, that that's been done. The, um, Rachel touched on some of them, but even through a kind of a small tax measure, even through a, a few fractions of a cent, um, these can really be effective. The, um, the city of Raleigh, North Carolina, through their um, through their user charges, collects a very small percentage that um, provides a fund for acquisition of critical lands in their watershed. And so there, there are lots of ways that um, this can take place. Public-private partnerships is yet another one. Um, and through the Source Water Collaborative, there is actually a, a series of these that we've compiled that um, gives folks, I think, some ideas. Um, and we have a lot of collaborative partners that are kind of very anxious, I think, to, to partner with you and kind of thinking these through. Um, finally, just um, a couple of finishing slides here. One final example in the New York City watershed where they've used economic incentives to encourage land conservation um, that protect the Croton and Catskill Delaware watersheds um, they've also, New York City has used $27 million from the Clean Water SRF as well as a voter-supported bond and real estate tax measure to fund projects. And these have had real benefits in their watershed um, during Hurricane Sandy. Uh, fortunately, the, the upstream watershed was not impacted and uh, was able to provide clean water throughout that, throughout that um, very devastating incident. Um, there are a lot of uh, ancillary benefits in terms of recreational opportunities and revenues and safeguards against things like sediment, fertilizer, salts, oils, etc. Um, the New York, New York watershed is a, is a really interesting example where um, the city has control over much of the watershed. Um, it's also in, in, uh, important, I think, and valuable to take a look at watersheds like um, the Philadelphia watershed, the Schuylkill where they don't control much of their watershed. And so um, there is a, a great need there for collaboration and creativity and um, in the ways that they go about protecting their watershed. So um, we like to, to learn from both kinds of examples to, to um, instruct us in ways that we can really make this happen. Lots of good information has been compiled. Uh, we have a, we, the Source Water Collaborative that um, collaborative group that I mentioned has a watershed, excuse me, a, um, a resource called www.sourcewatercollaborative.org, a very intuitive um, website with a lot of good information compiled. And as Rachel mentioned, they're actually going through, we're going through a kind of a reimagining process for the, for the website, which I think will make it even more user-friendly. So... A challenging process, uh, not easy to be done, but important to be done, and lots of good examples of success, um, lots of good collaborative partners out there that are waiting to work with you. Um, uh, one of the things that we heard from APA representatives um, in working through that planner's guide that Rachel referred to is that to the extent that we can make um, bring data and information to the table early in the planning process, 
the better chances we have for success. Retrofitting, doing things later in the planning process, while it can be done, it's much harder to be done. So the the thing that we heard loudly and clearly from your representatives is uh, give us good actionable data and information early on, bring the right experts to the table so that uh, we have the best chances for success and we can fold it into the planning process. So with that, um, I think we're, we're kind of nearing the end of our hour and wondering if we can uh, just kind of throw it open to your thoughts, your observations, your questions.